Um, like I said at the top of our worship service together, um, the whole Palm Sunday thing, we kind of think of it as cute because we usually associate it with the Palm Sunday thing where the kids come forward with the branches and they do the little parade and we think, isn't that sweet? But you, we have to see that in context that what's going on right there at that moment is a little bit of what we might want to call political theater. I know this might be a shock to you, but in politics, there's a great deal of theatrics. I know. <laughs> It's just crazy. Who would have thunk it, right? But there's political theater going on where there are just a few words, a few actions that sort of, there's more than meets the eye in some of what's going on. And, and the reason I call that moment political theater is because when Jesus enters Jerusalem that day, you hear them singing, which you heard Amanda recite from Psalm 118. Hosanna! Save us! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! That's all rich Psalm 118 stuff. But tacked on to the end of their saying is this. Blessed is even the king of Israel. That's not in Psalm 118. They're tacking that on there. They're throwing that in there. And when they pull out these fronds, that's different too. That's off the script. Jesus enters Jerusalem on the feast of the Passover. Israelites wouldn't have pulled these things out unless it was the Feast of the Tabernacles, a very different feast, a very different time. And whenever they would do that, it would signify something. It would signify either a military victory or a messianic anticipation. This is not just what they had on hand. This was saying something. And what it was saying was this. Israel thought what was afoot was regime change. There already was a king, Herod, over them. There already was an emperor, Tiberius, over them. But for them to pull out the fronds when Jesus walks into Jerusalem, that saying, finally, the dude who's come to displace all this mendacity and corruption, he's here. He's the one we're waiting for. Folks, this is political theater. This isn't cuteness. And you know what? Jesus jumps in with the saying. He does his own political theater. How? He steps onto a donkey, and he rides that donkey into town. And what he is saying by jumping onto a donkey is that I have come humbly, and I have come as your king, but I'm not the king you're looking for. This is not what you were expecting. Yes, I'm interested in regime change too, but not the regime change you're looking for, at least not yet. That for Jesus to come into Jerusalem on that bull, on that donkey, with everybody singing this and, and waving these, is for Jesus to be saying, before I will ever take aim at human authorities, I will take aim at different authorities. Authorities as expansive as the cosmic powers over all things, but also the authorities that are as deeply hidden as the interior recesses of the human heart. I've come for regime change, but not the regime change you think it is. What does this have to do with the letter that Paul writes to the churches of Galatia that we've been studying for these last few months? It's this. I said last week that the freedom that Paul is talking about in writing that, those, those letters is a freedom that exists within It's a freedom of the interior. It's a freedom of the human heart. And where we're going to go this week in this passage as he elaborates on the nature of that freedom is to say this. Freedom is all about regime change.
except that regime change always begins at home, at home in the heart. And in these just six or seven verses that we're going to continue to listen to Paul about, he's going to kind of do this. He's going to talk to us about what the nature of this change the gospel seeks, where that change is mainly seen, and how that change is substantively wrought. What is the nature of that change the gospel seeks? How is that change mainly seen? And how is that change substantively wrought? That's what we're going to do. That's where we're going to listen. If you're able, we're towards the end of chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 25. If you're able to stand, I wonder if you might. Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 25. We'll back up a verse. If we live by the Spirit, let's also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For anyone thinks he is something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. This is the enigmatic word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I backed up a verse in verse 15 because it gives us a running start. And you heard him say, if we live by the Spirit, we keep in step with the Spirit. Which is wonderfully um, um, evocative language. If you want to kind of put it in a more modern sensibility, um, imagine a dance partner. Um, you ever watch the ballroom dancing? There was a great movie I think came out several years ago called Ballroom Dancing, right? And it was it's it's when anybody watches two people who do this professionally, there is an elegance, there is a fluidity to it that you just can't take your eyes off of. But what they're doing in that moment is they're not on autopilot. There is this constant um, appreciation, attentiveness, responsiveness to everybody's just almost subtly insensible movement. They are keeping in step with one another, which allows them to just parade about the floor with great grace. And, and Paul is talking about the Holy Spirit in us, God's presence in us, is something that we have to remain very attentive to and very responsive to, like two partners on a dance floor. And, and so he sort of sets the stage for that, and then he takes this very abrupt shift into verse 26. He says, did I pass that? He says in verse 26, listen to this. He says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Abrupt shift. All of a sudden, keep in step with the Spirit. Now, let you not become conceited. What's his concern there? Our common susceptibility to conceit. Now, let's unpack what conceit is. The, the actual Greek word there is the word kinodoxoi. Our King James Version uh, translation of that word would be literally empty glory. Kino means empty. Doxoi means worship or glory. Kino doxoi. Empty glory. Vain glory. When we use the word conceit, it sort of captures the same sensibility. It kind of inverts the idea, though, because we think of conceit more as a swollenness of the self. 
where our whole self kind of fills the frame of our wholeness. And so uh, it's kind of a, um, a silly way of putting it, but imagine if you have a selfie stick. I mean, imagine the selfie thing. Like, ima- we, we can unpack that metaphor for a while, couldn't we? The selfie? Like, people have selfie sticks, and can you imagine, you know, bringing all your friends together and like, okay, hey, let's take a picture of ourselves. And then at the last minute, you pull it in so that it only looks at you. And they all, all your friends look at you like, what is wrong with you? Conceit. You fill the frame. Nobody else matters. Oh boy, is it a selfie to be sure. That is the conceit he's worried about here. And if you were here last week, you, you heard me uh, uh, reference um, an, an essay or an article from, uh, from uh, the, the Department of Health in Minnesota, which speaks of sort of the, the nature of children and how they are sort of naturally conceited, if you will, even though it might be inappropriate to apply that definition to their world, even though it's certainly, they're the embodiment of it. Everything is about them. And, and the point I, in referencing that is to say that when it comes to conceit, we come wired with conceit even before we see it in a moral framework. It's what we do. It's how we get along. It's how we think we'll survive. It's how we think we'll flourish. Left to ourselves, we will assume and assert our self-importance just like a regime. I know it's a French word, but when we use that word regime, it's a... uh, it's sort of a, a pejorative connotation to it because we believe that regimes are those that need to be replaced. Regimes are those that wreak havoc. And Paul is saying that that regime of the self, which he puts under this very compact word conceit, manifests itself in two ways. Provoking one another, he says, envying one another. Let me, let me camp on that for just a little bit there on each of those two things. What does it mean to provoke it, to provoke one another is usually a very public thing. Um, uh, Goliath, when he is um, throwing down with Israel, that's provoking. Um, he is out to pick a fight. And his confidence is sort of manifested in his bravado. That's provoking. Which is a great story. I highly recommend it. But let's put it in a different, a little bit more familiar context. Um, imagine just any sort of setting, any, any relationship where there's conflict. Uh, in a marriage, um, in a workplace, in just a friendship. There is coming at the issue in the midst of that conflict. That's one thing. But there's also coming at the person. Coming at the person sometimes feels like you're coming at the issue. But a lot of the times, all you're doing is really attacking them. You're provoking them. You're out to pick a fight with them. You don't see the greater thing behind you that's between you, and instead you're just coming at them. That's provoking. It's, it's, it's seeking a kind of understanding to preserve the relationship. That's not provoking. Versus just trying to throw your weight around to prove something or win an argument. That's provoking. And that's where conceit has come to rest. And it's as easy as a summer day. Okay, what about envying? What's the concern about that? When you listen to the, the Mark's version of what happens to Jesus when he goes into Jerusalem on that fateful um, day when he had, he had come to die in that city. Uh, later in the narrative of Mark's um, uh, version of the gospel, he speaks of how it was the Pharisees who were, for Pilate perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. You heard Lee read that. 
that foreboding comment from the Pharisees. See? The world has gone over out for him. That's envy. Envy is a word we, we talk about. It's not just seeing a disparity between what you are or what you have and what somebody else has. Envy is brooding on that. Envy is being disgusted by that. Um, as one author put it, envy is being bitter that someone else is better. That's envy. That's conceit. Because the self is front and center. You can have a, a, you can strut openly because you're conceited, or you can brood inwardly, both because you're conceited. And that explains just why you and I need regime change. It's not premeditated. It's just instinctual. We get a thrill of asserting ourselves to making ourselves look important. And we are terrified of ourselves feeling diminished or dismissed. All of that is an indication of this thing called conceit living just beneath the surface of our heart. And it's why we need regime change. What's the alternative? If conceit is not to prevail or carry the day, what's the alternative? You heard Paul put it in verse 1 of chapter 6. You who are spiritual. Spiritual, very popular word these days. People like to say they're spiritual but not religious. I believe in spirituality. It's held the day, which is just sort of remarkable, given our materialistic scientific age, that people are still lining up, joining up, doing everything they can to attain to this nebulous thing called spirituality. What does Paul mean by it? It's not nebulous. Yes, um, we might think he means it's a belief in the unseen, that there is more to reality than just what we can see, feel, touch, taste, or quantify. We might define it like that. Paul is defining it, though, as one who is under the influence of God's Holy Spirit through faith in the Son. Whereas God... Presence takes up residence in us. And as a consequence, this, this natural inclination to exalt ourselves begins to be displaced such that now we want to exalt God in our inner being. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus tells a parable of a house that is under the, um, the influence of seven demons. And he speaks of those demons being swept out of the house and set clean. And everybody thinks it's all good. And then he says, no, those demons just bring back those that were stronger than the ones that were swept out. And they take up residence in there. And Jesus is saying by way of that parable, among other things, that one does not simply remove that which is afflicting you. That what is afflicting you has to be displaced. Something else has to move in in order for that thing that you don't want to really move out. And so what Jesus is getting, what Paul is getting out here is that when he says, you who are spiritual, the nature of this regime change is this. Yourself has, as it were, taken up squatter's rights on your person. And God, by his spirit, through faith in his son, has come to reclaim ownership over who had the original deed, like him. You belong to him, but you've taken up squatter rights in yourself And he has come to say, it's time for you to move on. That's the nature of regime change. That's what he's out to do in us. Which sounds just wonderful and sweet and something that you would expect a pastor to say. What does it look like? What is a really concrete, 
discernible difference that you can say, aha, regime change has begun to take hold. Here's my second point. Where is, where is this change mainly seen? At least in this passage, Paul's going to say this change is mainly seen in how you react to a sister or a brother when they blow it. Do you want to know if regime change is making a real difference in you? His regime change that he intends, it will have a credible, discernible difference in how you respond to somebody who has really blown it, who's in Jesus. Last week, we kind of, Colin and I kind of sketched for you the, the contours of regime change, which we might put in biblical language, the idea of the fruit of the Spirit. All of those virtues that sort of collude into one, coalesce into one, in which, therefore, conceit is swallowed up by the fruit of the Spirit. But where it shows is what he says in verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Gospel-wrought regime change is going to be indicated by how you see, how you view, how you respond to someone who, despite their being in Jesus, has come to wreak havoc on themselves or someone else as a consequence of their own conceit, their own provocation, their own envy. And what is that response? Paul sort of nails it in two dimensions. A mandate and a manner. How do you see and respond to somebody that's blown it? Your mandate is to restore them. And that Greek word there for restore is the same word they use to talk about mending a net or resetting a bone of restoring health to that which has come undone, disjointed, broken, notwithstanding the harm that they may have done. It is mending so as to restore them to fellowship. Fellowship. Leadership, that's a different conversation. The same kind of responsibility that they had, that's a different conversation. But restored to fellowship, that is our mandate. That's what he's talking about. And the nature of that mandate will always be expressed in a certain manner. And that manner, he says, is gentleness. Gentleness has to circumscribe the act of restoration. It can't be this begrudging thing. King David, when he's estranged from his son Absalom, at some point welcomes Absalom back into the kingdom. And you think, all is well. But it's not. Because King David welcomes Absalom back into the kingdom, but he will not see him. You stay over there. I'm here. You stay there. It's not a gentleness. It's a begrudging willingness. It's beyond just tolerating. It is showing the utmost respect to one who has acted with the utter disrespect. Gentleness is not denying the severity, the gravity, the harm that they've done, but neither do they use their offense like a weapon and hold it over them. Do you see the beauty in that? 
Do you see the counterintuitiveness in that? I, I told you two weeks ago that when it comes to applying what we do in the rest of this letter, it is yours and my responsibility to listen to every exhortation Paul makes and ask ourselves, where is the beauty in that? Where is the beauty in having your mandate to restore them to fellowship with gentleness being the thing that circumscribes your effort? Where is the beauty in that? Here's the beauty in that. In the legal system, what we do is we indict and we punish and we lock away. In a job, you fall and fail, we reprimand, we fire, and we say, get out. In the church, though we fail, our mandate is to restore to fellowship. Not to condemn, not merely to tolerate. That's a mark of regime change. Why is it, though? He says it, he asserts it, what's the point? What's the ground? What's the rationale for that? Because he says in verse 1, keep watch on yourself. He's talking about having a measure of self-awareness that indicates anything but conceit. Because conceit denies one's own capacity for falling and failing. Restoring one to fellowship reflects the personal sense of how, how easily the tables could be turned and to see yourself in the same situation. Thomas Akempis, a medieval theologian, he talked, he wrote a book about the imitation of Christ, and he says, if you should see someone commit a sin or some grievous wrong, do not think of yourself as someone better, for you know not how long you will remain in your good state. We're all frail. But think of yourself as one who is more frail than others. That's what it looks like for the mandate and the manner to come together into one. The reason it's a mark of regime change is because it's evidence that you're under no delusion of your imperviousness to sin. You're going to want to be that guy or gal for somebody who has really blown it. You're going to want to be that guy or that gal because there may become a day where you're going to want somebody else to be that guy or that gal for you. Now that sounds like a totally self-interested way of responding. You could read it that way. Or you could say that that kind of response is a humble recognition of what it is to be spiritual. Because look, if you say that you are a believer, then there was a point at which the Holy Spirit of God convinced you, persuaded you that you were in need of forgiveness, that you were in need of redemption to your core. Why then should you be surprised if it's not that same spirit who then motivates you to extend the same to others who need the same? Just in a different existential moment. That's one reason it's a mark of regime change. Another is from what you heard there in verse 2 about bearing one another burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For Paul to speak of that as a burden, he's right. This restoration that you and I are called to is not a walk in the park. There is a weight to it. There is an encumbrance to it. It is inconvenient to be involved in this mandate. It will not accommodate your calendar. If someone blew up their life, if someone blew up 
other's life, whether it's through addiction or adultery or fits of anger or dissension, whatever it might have been, to restore them is going to be something more than just coming up and giving them a hug and say, God loves you. If it is really love and interest in their restoration that motivates you, guess what? You are signing up to involve yourself in their mess and to invite them into a conversation that allows them to retrace their steps and to find out what led them to find sin more gratifying. That's what reconciliation requires. That's what restoration requires. And it cost Jesus to bring it. Why should you be surprised that it doesn't cost you to extend something like it in return? Some of you may have been following the real tragedy of the doctor who abused countless women for USA Gymnastics. And you may have heard of this young woman named Rachel Den, Den Hollander, an attorney by training, a gymnast who was also one of those victims of abuse, who in her victim impact statement, the very first one to read, she said this. She's a Christian. If you've read the Bible you carry, sir, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its utter depravity and horror, without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase it. She extended to him the understanding that he too could be restored to fellowship and welcome among a body of people who called Jesus Lord. But for her to be really interested in his restoration would have to be really interested in that which needs to happen in him that led to him to be so estranged and to work such sin upon so many for so long. It is a burden. It is inconvenient. It is our mandate. And the manner in which it is offered. The strength, the growth, the witness of this church or any church will stand or fall on the kind of culture of restoration that depends on a regime change of our hearts, our collective hearts and our individual hearts. How's that going to happen then? That's my last point. We've talked about the nature of regime change, of, of the self becoming diminished in our own selves so that God would be preeminent in all things through Jesus. And we've said that that, that that regime change looks primarily not an interest in provoking, not in being swept away by envy and bitterness, and primarily by what we do for someone who's really blown it. So how is it substantively wrought? It's substantively wrought by being persuaded of two realities. The last three verses is Paul anticipating why someone might want to refuse to get involved in the work of helping someone be restored to fellowship. He knows it. He knows it's hard. He probably dabbled it in himself and continues to do so himself. He says in verse 3, if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. In other words, yours and my first inclination when it comes to seeing someone in our midst who's really blown it is to think, wow, they really screwed up. You know what? I'm not going to get involved. Forget them. They made their bed. They can sleep in it. Paul is saying, in a frame of mind like that, 
what you've just done is thought yourself something when in fact, friends, you're not anything. Now, wait a minute. What, nothing. He means this. In an attitude like that, you have already duped yourself into self-deception. Because you have begun to forget that apart from grace, you have no place in God. That the gospel has actually been swept to the margins and instead you think you're something before God because of anything that you've done, any accomplishment that you have, any ethics that you've advanced. You, you think you're something because you've really impressed him. And that that's why you have a seat at God's table. That's not a gospel-centered way of understanding your relationship to him. If you are thinking that you are something because of all those other substitutes for what he's done for you, then you are thinking that you are something. And in fact, you're really nothing. The unwillingness to extend someone at cost to yourself a return to fellowship is that you don't think you're in need of the same kind of grace. The reality of it is we all need it, though. We all have needed, though, and we will all need it again. And therefore, that is the reason that has to become true for you, the rationale for us all about why we would be involved in something like this. And it's not just a reason for why we seek that restoration. It's a privilege. It's a privilege to be involved in that work. Because isn't it true whether in a religious setting or not, that the people who are most energized and inspired to extend compassion to others are those who have come to be the beneficiary of that compassion to themselves. Which was the point of Jesus' little teachable moment when the prostitute breaks into the party and anoints his feet and the Pharisees look at her with contempt in a moment where she's got no reputation, she's got no standing, she's got no reason for thinking that he will listen. She is only grateful at his expression of compassion for her. And what does Jesus say in the midst of all of those who think she is vile? He says, those who have been forgiven much, love much. Regime change wrought in the heart comes by the conviction that I am only his by grace alone. That's one conviction, and this is the other. When he says in verse 4, let each of you test his own work, it is a convoluted passage that a lot of people debate as to its precise meaning. But at some level, he's talking about our conscience. And he says the way our consciences usually work, and the way consciences usually work both then and now is this. We think that if we've done well, that if we haven't done anything too egregious or too awful, then we are really not responsible for a radical kind of devotion that would seek to restore somebody else to fellowship among us. We kind of unconsciously grade ourselves on a moral, ethical bell curve, and we kind of see ourselves at sort of on the right hand of the, of the, the distribution, and we think, you know what, that's not bad. You know, that's pretty good. And so when somebody comes into our midst who's really blown, we think, that's your problem. When you think of yourself in that frame, you have failed to see yourself as God sees you. You can't look at yourself through the lenses of how you see someone else. 
The only way you can understand yourself is how God sees you through what he's done for you and his son. And you can't look at the cross and think to yourself, I just needed a little bitty attitude adjustment in order to become part of his people. What he's saying is this. So you haven't served time. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you've never cheated on your taxes. Maybe you were never sent to the principal's office when you were in school. All of those are good things. That's fine. Nothing wrong with aspiring to that. But if you think that's your own little resume, and then that little resume sort of warrants that you not ever extend yourself for the sake of restoring somebody else to fellowship, you have misunderstood yourself in the gospel. Leslie Newbegin was a pastor in the Church of Scotland. He spent decades as a missionary to India. He comes back from India to the West and observes that the West is as much a mission field as anywhere else in the world. And he said this, which is going to rub you a little wrong when you first read it, so stick with it. Ready? Here he goes this. I know that there is a delicate balance to be held here. Salvation is utterly free. We cannot earn it or be worthy of it. You've heard that before. You like that part. But this is why it is important that we talk not about salvation, but about the Savior. Salvation is God's free gift. So far, so good. Here it comes. But no one can come within reach of Jesus without knowing that one cannot be with Jesus except by giving up everything. Those who belong to Jesus and are able to commend him as Savior will be those who are manifestly following him on the way of the cross. The life that takes refuge in the shadow of that cross, who believes that your only way of being in right standing with the Lord is taking refuge in the shadow of that cross, will be the same life that is a cruciform shape. And it is manifestly seen in how you have an interest in restoring someone to fellowship. Where you see yourself not only as the privileged recipient of God's grace but also the commissioned ambassador of the same. The privileged recipient of it, the commissioned ambassador to it. We have not been shown grace like we've been seen in Jesus, but we have also not been enlisted like we have been in Jesus. The whole text is application. You've heard it. Is conceit part of you? You may not know. Where does it begin? I think it begins kind of where Luther says about this passage about praying. The suppression of pride? We need the strength of prayer. What man, even if he is a Christian, is not delighted with his own praise? Only the Holy Spirit can preserve us from the misfortune of pride. If everything is downstream of pride... And pride is significantly considered, reflected, confronted, and redeemed in the context of being vulnerable before our Lord in talking with Him and acknowledging that there may be something really deep and dark within us and insidious. It starts there. But it will always have this in mind. And for this, I take you to something that happened on Friday that reconfirms for us what it means to find the strength and the grace not to be conceded. His name is Arnaud Beltrand. He was a gendarme in the French police. 
And flags all over France today are at half-mast for Arnaud Beltrand. Because an assailant on Friday hopped into a car, killed the driver, took a hostage, crashed the vehicle, went into a supermarket, held several people hostage, released them, and then held a woman as a human shield. And Arnaud Beltrand came to the scene and said, let me, me for her, me for her. And the guy lets him, releases the woman, takes the policeman, and in the midst of the shootout to rescue him, he died. He was her rescue. Him for her. She was held hostage. And by his sacrifice, she is free. Folks, that's the gospel. You and I, if we are honest with ourselves, are held hostage to any number of things. And most often, our own conceit. And Jesus has come to say to us at his cross, me for you. Me for you. I'll die for that. Willingly, gladly, and necessarily. Whatever you have to do to remind yourself of something that you're prone to forget because other things collude to make you think it's not true, do that. I don't know what it is. It's no formula. But whatever you need to do to put Jesus before you in a way to remind you that when you are held hostage to your own conceit, you need to see him as one who said, me for you. When you see him, and you see the beauty of that, and all the tragedy that surrounds it, and the hope that comes from it, maybe you will release that death grip on your own self. At which point then you might release your own little death grip on your unwillingness to see someone restored to fellowship and to become involved in their mess in such a way that helps them know that they're loved but helps them also let go of what led them to follow their conceit too. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.